Welcome back to the Manhood Simplified Podcast, the show where we unpack the plethora of ways that toxic masculinity manifests itself in less than positive and meaningful ways in South Africa, with the idea being that the conversations that we have over the course of this show might inspire you to be the change that we need to see in South African society. My name is Gameli Shepovana, here to give you part two of the discussion that we've been having surrounding the relationship between toxic masculinity and the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa. My colleague, Ayanda had a spirited discussion with uh, Mr. Jabu Baloy from the Commission for Gender Equality and I'm here to explore the legal aspects of this conversation around the relationship between toxic masculinity and gender-based violence and to help us provide his insight on this matter it is an absolute pleasure at this time to welcome my guest advocate Manya Ma Moridima Manya. Um, Dr. thank you so much for joining us. If you could please take a moment to unpack the exact work that you do in this field through your capacity as a legal analyst. Thank you very much. I'm admitted as an advocate. I'm a practicing advocate. Uh, I regard myself as a human rights lawyer. I'm a former um, a public servant. I've been a head of the uh, Department of Agriculture in KwaZulu-Natal in my past life and twice in the province of Eastern Cape as the head of education. And I do quite a lot of public interest work and just normal legal work. Absolutely amazing stuff. Now, to unpack and perhaps contextualize the conversation that we've been having, a lot of conjecture has been made around the ways in which our country's criminal justice system has failed victims of gender-based violence, victims of sexual crimes, and victims of violence altogether. Can you talk us through the exact ways in which the law has to run its course when it comes to cases of rape, cases of gender-based violence in this country, and perhaps unpack why these processes take as much time as they do. Yeah, maybe we should go a bit backwards before we start to talk about the law and talk about the foundation of this whole problem of uh, 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 gender-based violence, where it actually originates from. And it's not a South African phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. And you will recall that from time immemorial, somebody seems to have taken a decision that women will be subordinate. If you look at it from a religious point of view, the Bible itself seems to suggest that women are subordinate. And throughout you know, the course of humanity, women have never been equal. Uh, they've actually always been seen as objects. Now, there's this historical, and I think the, the proper dis description is probably to talk about the historical injustice against women, not only in terms of basic equality, but general equality. Women could not vote, didn't have authority. They were subjected to patriarchy, both European and African patriarchy. And this continued to define the relationship that society has with women, because society has also defined the type of roles that it believes women should play. For instance, in, in terms of how society defines issues, if you are married to a woman, you own her. If, if, if you want to sleep with her, you are entitled. It doesn't matter how she feels about it. And I think this is the evolution of this problem. Yes, in time, there has been a movement towards the recognition of the rights of women, but it's still a limited recognition because the actual foundation of uh, 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 inequality against women remains fully intact. Uh, women continue to remain 
subject to violence, whether in cases of war, and you could see in any event, any situation where there's been war, women and children would have been the most vulnerable and the worst victims uh, of that. But who are the perpetrators of this? It's, it's the male species. Of course, we must also understand that the system of patriarchy itself and what people claim to be cultural practices also makes women to be party to these stereotypes that uh, women would say, no, 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 uh, my child, you are, this is your husband. You must cooperate. Now, even if you are beaten, you must cooperate. And I think that is the context within which we must look at it. Just to latch on to what you've just said then, does this, does this relationship and this tension between the, the history that you've just traced as, as far as how, how, how this idea of, of the relationship between men and women has been manifested in, uh, in, religious, in religious conversation and the ways in which the societal sort of ideas around the, the, the various roles that men and women play back then versus in modern um, society today, this tension between that and the ways in which um, these matters are addressed whenever they come up from a legal aspect, do you see a link between the supposed failure um, by our country's justice system, our country's police service, to address these issues with the urgency that they need because so many people believe in these roles that have been instilled um, in them for, for as long a time as they have been? Yes, I mean, look, you know, the, the law doesn't operate in a vacuum. And I think if you were to characterize this and call it a culture, because the culture means there's this practice, there's this acceptance or understanding that, you know, a, a, a women's position is this one, and they must accept this type of thing. This is why, for instance, and, and we'll come to the, the, the new Sexual Offenses Act, now, probably one of the best pieces of legislation across the, across the world. But why is it ineffective? It's because a woman walks into a police station, has been abused, whether sexually or otherwise, and meets this very indifferent man that is surprised, why are you complaining? Is he your boyfriend? I mean, the, the first question they will ask this woman, is he your man? Is he your, but he's your husband. I mean, can't you go and solve it? And then you have this many other problems that says, for instance, in cases of uh, abuse of children, uh, you will hear, now let's talk about this as a family, you know. Uh, you go to church, the same problem, and, and we have seen the emergence of extreme and aggravated forms of abuse of the girl child in the church. I mean, we have seen so-called pastors grooming these children. And don't think there are no church elders there. Don't think there are no Christian mothers in the church, but the attitude and the culture says, let's not talk about it the legal way. Let's talk about it, you know, you'll embarrass the bishop, you'll embarrass the, the pastor, you know. Now, and you have also found that some women do participate. I mean, if, you, if I give you an example of the case in Port Elizabeth of, of this pastor, and there are two women accused who were so instrumental in, in allegedly in the crimes that were committed. So there is a direct relationship until and unless we move the mindset to a full acceptance, because at the moment I don't think we have a full acceptance. We have a full acceptance of the equality of men and women. Now, men and women are not the same, but they are equal. I'm probably more physically stronger 
than my female counterpart. No doubt about it. That is how physiologically we are structured. But there's nothing that says mentally I'm superior uh, to my female counterpart. You know, there are a lot of things a woman can be a president. Uh, it doesn't matter. I always say to people, I've been in a lot classroom. I've had women, uh, girls who were in the same class, and some performed far better than all the males combined. Now, the question is, now we leave the classroom. We're now in practice. Suddenly, they are inferior. It's, an, it's a mindset issue. And, and until we deal with the issue of the mindset and the full acceptance of this principle of equality, then we'll have a problem. Because it also means that the training, which might also be provided, is becoming obsolete. It's not serving a purpose. Because this man sits here and he says, look, I'm a man. I need to understand why you are complaining about another man. And he thinks about how he beat his wife in the morning. And he now wants to understand how. This one is also complaining that he has been beaten. Then these women are a problem. Now, that is the difficulty that we are settled with. It doesn't matter whether they are judicial officers. The attitude might still be the same. And that is where the fundamental problem is. I, I keep on saying that, you know, the struggle for the total emancipation of women is not the struggle of the women. The women are the victims. If we decide as men to emancipate the women, they will be emancipated in a matter of minutes. We have decided to perpetuate the historical injustice of subjugating them. So we think it is appropriate. Now, if I take you forward, we have the Constitution which guarantees equality. Section 9 of the Constitution says all are equal. Now, the question is, what is the meaning of equality? I call gender-based violence the modern form of slavery because women live in fear. Women can't dress the way they want. They can't walk where they want. You, they can't go to entertainment areas without being administered um, uh, uh, drugs, you know, the, the, you know, the sex date. Uh, drugs, you know, they can't do that. Women can't say we're going to travel between Pretoria and Johannesburg at 2 o'clock in the morning without being abused or without being harassed, even if they were to be stopped. And I have no doubt that when, if police were to stop me as a man, drunk, and, and they were to stop a female driver who's drunk, the conversation would be different. You know, now those are the realities. So whether we have got the good laws or not, is not the starting point. The starting point is whether we have the correct attitude towards the implementation of the good laws. Let me give an example. The new Sexual uh, Offenses Act makes provision that victims of uh, gender-based violence must be supported by the state. So, and, and, and support doesn't mean giving a hug. It means providing resources, providing facilities to enable victims to speak out, to have these cases processed, to have statements taken properly, to have the prosecutions effectively conducted, to be provided with psychological support. How much of that do we have? Now, just to latch on to that very quickly, um, my colleague Ayanda brought this up in the conversation that he had with Mr. Chabubaloi mm -hmm. from the Commission for Gender Equality. I would like to get your insight on the link between the, the relatively low con uh, conviction rates and the, 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 the how the stats 
seem to indicate a lack of action being taken against this issue, the scourge of gender-based violence. The relationship between that and how men and perpetrators of this violence might feel further emboldened to commit these criminal acts. What is, in your view, how strong is that, li that link between what the stats dictate as far as how little action is being taken against this issue and how men feel emboldened by this lack of action being taken? And how, how much further back do you think that will set us back in, in successfully addressing this issue and making it a thing of the past? You know, we, we don't even talk about the extent to which matters are not even reported. You're talking about the statistics mm. of the small percentage of cases that are reported. But there's millions of cases which are not even reported. And one of the things that is glaring is that it is discouraging for women to come forward. You see, the whole system of patriarchy has got this strong element of shame in it, makes women feel ashamed to report that they are being abused. Because society will say, what did you want at the taxi rank in the miniskirt? What were you doing at the club or at the tavern? You know, uh, it's the gender roles. You, you are a woman, you're supposed to be at home. So you were basically at the wrong place. And that's how this happened. And this emboldens this abuse thing. And, and I've highlighted the fact that there are all these funny mechanisms of solving or attending to these problems. You go to a police station. As a woman, you want to report. They say, OK, can we call your husband and talk about it? OK? But you are there to report a crime. That on its own immediately says to you, this matter is not going to be attended. because. What happens if the woman says, listen, I'm here to report an offense. This man has assaulted me. I want him to be arrested. Now, this officer has already said to you, Norman, this is a family thing. Can we talk about it? Can we call him and talk about it? You have already discouraged the victim. You know, there, there are a lot of bureaucratic failures. Uh, there's probably lack of capacity as well, both in terms of the investigation. Uh, and, and if you look generally, the environment in the police station. I mean, I walked into one police station in, in Pretoria. I honestly don't regard it as a police station. And I, I went in there, and I, I was even asking myself, I, I was there for something else. But I look at this environment, and there are these police officers, and unfortunately, most of them female, sitting both sides of the counter, and just having these wild chats about things that have got nothing to do with the work that they're there. And I was asking myself a question. What happens if a woman who's traumatized were to walk in here seeking help, and she's received by that environment, you know? And hear some of the conversations that are taking place there. What encouragement does she have uh, to, to proceed to complain? You know, and, and those are the difficulties that you have. You, you go to a police station and you say, there's the guy that abused me, and the police say, we don't have a van. And this guy now gets to know that, hey, I think I'm in trouble here, and he disappears. Three months down the line, he has not yet been arrested. Now, the issue of efficiency in dealing with the cases of gender-based violence is what encourages the scourge of gender-based violence. 
you know. So even if we were to have only those that are reported uh, properly dealt with, it will encourage others to come through. There's an issue that was raised, you know, during the hard lockdown. And because we are sort of a denialist society, we've probably not spoken about it. And there was a question of how much gender-based violence occurred during the period of the lockdown, where people could not, you know, freely move. Uh, we've never spoken about those issues. We don't want to talk about what happens in the churches. We don't want to talk about what happens in the schools. You know, as if you know for now, for instance, the, the law requires the teachers and the adults in the schools to report any acts of uh, violence towards uh, the girl children, for instance, in the schools. But listen, those who will report will mostly likely be victimized. Uh, the system will do nothing about it. In the same way that our system does nothing about whistleblowers. The people who says, who report corruption, who alert us about, they become victims. They lose their jobs, you know. And that is, is the same principle. So there's an there's a ethical and moral problem in our society which becomes encouraging, emboldened by the inefficiencies that, uh, uh, that uh, we experience in our system. Now, everything that you've just mentioned lends itself to the political element of this very contentious discussion that we're having surrounding the scourge of gender-based violence and the role that toxic masculinity has to play in, in this conversation. I remember a conversation I was having with a very, a very well-learned female friend of mine um, whose, whose, whose perspective on the recent round of local government elections that we've just come from and the, the relatively low voter turnout that emerged from that, um, that, that period of local government elections and how that was reflected in what she um, what, 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 in, in explaining why she decided not to go cast her vote. She um, expounded on the fact that she didn't feel any kind of confidence that any of the political parties competing for her vote had any sort of concrete plan in place to address gender-based violence. So I'd like to pose this question to you as far as the role that our country's politics has to play in this conversation, the ways in which our country's political parties can... Um, can, can, can Take, can, can provide insight on this topic, put plans in, in place to address this issue once and, for, uh, once and for all. Do they, these political parties, feel as if these, these issues can be used as a, as a ploy to get more voters on their side? Or are they in any way incentivized to address this issue and put plans in place to attract the voters that they would like for their various political parties in order to contribute to this issue being addressed? Look, I think it's a, it's, it's a very sad situation, I must say. You see, it doesn't matter what the policies of the DA, ANC, EFF, UDM, whatever the case may be, but there are things which are national interests. There are things which, regardless of what political views or agenda you have, we have to agree on. Now, the sadness of our nation is that we could agree in, in the 90s, 1994, to transition from apartheid to a constitutional democracy in a peaceful way. But we cannot agree that an, a thing like corruption, a thing like gender-based violence, are killing our nation. 
it's, it's got, doesn't matter whether you are an ANC member, whether you are a TA member, every woman is a potential victim of gender-based violence. Even if the ANC were to have a female president, that president is vulnerable to gender-based violence. Now, we can't even come together as a nation, uh, whether it's civil society or political parties, and agree that there are non-negotiables in our nation. For instance, gender-based violence, as I say, I call it a modern form of slavery. It should, in my view, be at the top. Of the, there's nothing, we will not have economic transformation. I hear people talk about land. Um, there's no meaningful uh, 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 acquisition of land without addressing the plight of women. You can go now to some traditional communities. Women are not allowed to own land. So we, we're still talking about it, but it's not just about not being allowed to own land. It's about the level of deprivation. Their voice is muted. They can't speak. You, if you can't even own land here, what is it that you can talk about? You can't complain about anything. So I'm saying that it's not about a voting issue. It's about a national interest and a national responsibility. And, and I think I, I'm hard-pressed to say uh, we may be lacking in the correct leadership uh, across the board. I still want to hear and I don't think any single political party can stand up and say it has acquitted itself in its fight against gender-based violence. You can even see in the political parties themselves. You can see the, the composition of the leadership. You can see the role of women in those parties, that it's, it remains insignificant. And, and, but I must say that my insistence is that the, the emancipation of women is not the job of women. Because they are not the oppressors. We are the oppressors. We must set them free. Um, but I'm saying that if you look at the total structure, um, you will see that uh, there's very little. I think people want political power. And they are talking about things that may be far above what we need to be dealing with. Uh, as I say, yes, we need to get the land back. No question about it. But what is... How is this land back going to benefit women who are subjected to this incessant abuse? You know? So for me, that's the, let, let me take you back. Today is the birthday of my grand-aunt Charlotte McClecker. And many years ago, she said that the difficulty we have in our society is when men have a problem with women knowing and exercising their rights. And that is the the central problem that we have, that unless we liberate women to know and exercise their rights, and at the same time we participate in enforcing the exercise of their rights, we are nowhere near dealing with this issue of inequality, gender inequality and gender-based violence. Indeed. Now, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up in the interest of achieving a degree of objectivity in the way in which we conduct this conversation. Mm. But I would like to get your insight on uh, this matter of false accusations mm. of gender-based violence, which always comes up as a counter whenever this conversation is being had mm. by the broader public. Mm. What in, can you take us through the legal recourse that um, people who are found 
um, guilty of of manipulating the, 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 the mechanisms and the ends of the law in addressing this issue, people who are found to have falsely accused someone of gender-based violence. What kind of legal action do those people have, regardless of how minuscule and how rare those instances of false accusations may be? Well, firstly, let me say they are not necessarily rare uh, because there's also the downside of this whole thing is that you know, this whole issue of gender gets weaponized for malicious purposes. Now, to answer your question, it depends on where this happens. If somebody were to walk into a police station and report a, a case of gender-based violence, it'd be raped or assault, whatever the case may be, which is false, that person stands to be charged with perjury which is making a false statement under oath is a criminal offense. So that person can actually pay the consequences of that. It may be that the statement is made outside of a criminal process. Uh, whoever the allegations are made against would still have the right to take legal action now uh, and sue for damages. So, so it's a question of rights come with responsibility. So it's not as if... Uh, because you have a right to raise this issue of gender-based violence, then you must go around and make false accusations against other people. At a policy level, it's one of the major problems that we are confronted with, because you, you, you stand up, you put resources to try and fight this particular case, only to find that this is all false and concocted and contrived. It becomes discouraging as well. It also undermines the plight of those people who are the real victims of gender-based violence. And I think, for me, there has to be some measure of more serious punishment uh, provided for in law for people who make these false accusations. Uh, and, and I think we need to deal decisively, not only with those who make false allegations, but for those who also abuse gender for other uh, uh, interests. Uh, you know, there are people who would come and say, I must be appointed here because I'm a woman. Uh, but when you check, you find that there are many other women far better qualified and far more competent who should be appointed. So uh, that abuse of gender is a, is a major problem and it's, it's a setback. Indeed, and I think that's a great place for us to leave this discussion. Advocate Muridi Mamanya joining us here on the Manhood Simplified podcast to help us explore the legal aspects of this conversation surrounding the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa, the role that toxic masculinity has to play in the presence of the scourge in this country, and the work that still needs to be done from multiple levels of society, both above and on the same level as the legal aspect of this conversation. Advocate, thank you so much for taking your time to join us and I really hope that um, the conversation that we've been having over the course of the brief period of time we've been able to spend with you might inspire someone watching to put the, to put the plans and mechanisms in place to be the change that we need in society. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.